turn with me this evening to 1 John, New Testament letter towards the end of the Bible, 1 John. I'm thinking of doing for our next series, 2 Corinthians. I know we've never done 1 Corinthians, but I got really interested in 2 Corinthians. And at first I thought, well, I guess we better do 1st. If we're going to do second, and I thought, well, you don't have to do that, do you? I want to do second Corinthians, so we're going to we're going to start second Corinthians soon. But when you start a new series, need a week or two to get get my feet under me before we plow into the book as a whole. So we'll do one or two weeks just of some one-off messages here, and we'll look tonight at First John, then chapter five. Let me read for us verses one through twelve. 1 John chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Amen. This is God's word, and let's pray for his help. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we meet and counter in the word, in the spirit of God who gives us understanding. So, Father, Son, and Spirit, give us that grace tonight to hear your word, to rejoice in it, to love you, to be conformed to your image, to be strengthened in our faith, and to be sent out to live for you this week. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In the state of Michigan, and we've got a few folks native to Michigan in our congregation, there's a large bridge called the Mackinac Bridge. It connects the upper and lower peninsulas of Michigan. It's a half mile long, so once you're out on it, you're pretty far from the shore. And some people get very nervous when they cross this bridge. I worked for a pastor once. He grew up in Michigan and served in Michigan. He had a girl in his youth group who was terrified to cross that bridge. She would, she would curl up and get on the floor of the van and put her hands over her ears when they would cross that bridge. She feared she wasn't safe. Though thankfully, despite her fears, they never had any trouble on that bridge. 
Now you compare that with what happened in Minneapolis years ago on August 1st, 2007, as thousands of cars drove home from work during rush hour, the I-35 West Bridge, which spans the Mississippi River, suddenly collapsed. And several cars fell to the water below. Sadly, 13 people died from the Minneapolis bridge collapse. And there's a certain irony that the girl from Michigan feared a bridge that proved reliable. Whereas the drivers crossing the Minneapolis bridge probably didn't expect it to collapse. But the fact is, one was reliable and the other was not. Regardless of how the people felt one was safe and the other was not. Well, earlier in John's letter, he admonishes his readers, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. There were false teachers in John's day who appealed to the spirit. And John writes this letter to deal with true and false, those who remain with the congregation, those who go out for heretical reasons. And John's got tough language because he's dealing with truth and error, with light and dark. And so these false teachers would appeal in their message to the spirit. But that appeal in and of itself did not guarantee the truth of their message. And those who followed their false message may have been sincere, but their sincerity was misplaced. They were sincerely wrong. And so here in chapter 5, John develops one of the central messages of his letter and gives us the answer to this conundrum. If we're not to believe every spirit, then what are we to believe? John tells us, here's where to focus your faith. Here's the proper object of your faith. Here's the object that will prove reliable. And so this chapter falls into two sections. You have faith itself with its fruits and then the object of that faith. So let's work our way through this passage tonight to bring some assurance, some encouragement to our own faith. Let's see what John says here about faith and its object. He says two things. One, he talks about the importance of faith and its fruits. We're getting towards the end of this letter, and so John prepares to conclude, and he summarizes his main message in these opening verses. That's one of the reasons this standalone passage works well tonight. It kind of summarizes a big thrust of 1 John. He's trying to answer the question, what are the main characteristics of those who are born of God. And he gives us three. Belief in Jesus as the Christ, love for God and one another, and obedience to the commands of God. So let's focus on those three. I'll repeat them as we go through these verses. The first half of verse one reads, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, that first characteristic, belief in Jesus as the Christ. And notice how John highlights the theme of assurance. How can I know that I am born of God? John's answer, as an eyewitness to the life and resurrection of Jesus, is because you believe that Jesus is the Christ. So notice you have faith here as a condition of salvation, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. 
and it is also a sign of salvation. We know that we are born of God because we believe in Jesus. And it's, it's, it's a blessing, I suppose. It's good. Maybe some of you remember the day when that first event happened, when you believed. But the emphasis in John, perhaps, is on this second idea, your ongoing belief. God promises you this. Do you believe it? Then as you trust in that promise, you can have the assurance of salvation. It's a good approach to take with children, especially who grew up in church. They may not remember the day or the hour. They probably don't remember not believing in Jesus. So you put before them the promises of God and say, is this your trust? Is this your hope? Then you can have assurance of eternal life. Now, notice, by the way, John's kind of already getting ahead of, you know, my convenient two-point outline. He wants to talk already about faith's object. He says, we do not just believe in Jesus, but we believe that Jesus is the Christ. And you compare that with verse 5, the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So you've got two titles here, Christ and Son of God. Now, they overlap heavily, but they're not the same thing. So Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. And that highlights Jesus' function. He's the anointed one. And who did you anoint in the Old Testament? You anointed prophets, priests, and kings. So when the Bible calls Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah, it's highlighting that function. He brings us this salvation as the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the perfect king. Now, Son of God, on the other hand, that focuses somewhat more on Jesus' nature. He's the one who comes from God. He's God's Son, which means he shares God's nature. And yet we also read in the scriptures that he is a distinct person from the Father. And so John is saying when we believe in Jesus, there are certain things that we believe about Jesus. He is the Messiah, that's his function. He is the Son of God, that's his nature. You trust in that person and you have eternal life, John promises. And now John transitions then secondly to our love. So we have our belief in Jesus, now our love for one another. The end of verse 1 he says, Everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. So follow John's logic here. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you are born of God. If you are born of God, then you will love him. It makes sense that children love their parents. So if you love the Father, then you'll love everyone else who is born of God. There shouldn't be alienated siblings in God's family. When there are, John questions, okay, are both parties members? Of the family, because there should be this love for one another. And notice also verse 2 this is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commandments. And when John says this here at the beginning of verse 2, it's probably referring back to the principle at the end of verse 1. Here's a summary by this principle, namely, that we must love our father's children. That's how we know that we ought to love the children of God 
And when we love God and keep his commands, when we love one another, we are doing those things. As we love God and keep his commands, so we also must love one another. It's just one big package that we can't untangle. And finally, John speaks of the necessity of Christian obedience, the third characteristic. John refers to loving God and carrying out his commands in verse 2, and then he connects the two ideas in verse 3. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. And burdensome, that, that, that idea of difficulty, trouble, because demands are being placed upon you. John's point is, hey, Jesus' commands, they're not difficult because of their demands. It's not an overwhelming burden. Now, you may say, okay, well, wait a minute. I believe the Bible, but, you know, Jesus does demand some very difficult things. How can John just so casually say his commands are not burdensome? I'd say a couple things. First, John is referring to particular commands, faith and love. So, So he's not talking about every command that Jesus gave necessarily. He is focusing on faith and love. Secondly, we know from Jesus' own teaching that there are, his commands are not burdensome because they are free from the legalistic, man-made traditions where there's no finger lifted to help carry them. What does Jesus say in Matthew 11? Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy." And my burden is light. See, see, the burdensome commands are those bound by the Pharisees or, or any other teacher who, who weaves into God's beautiful truth man-made commands, man-made traditions, and then dumps them on God's people and doesn't lift a finger to help us carry them. Jesus says, you, you trust in me and follow me. And that is not a burdensome way as you trust and love. And, and third, and perhaps this makes the most sense of this language here. Jesus' commands are not burdens because a supernatural change has taken place inside of us. Look at the beginning of verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. Why are God's commands not burdensome? Because we're born of God. And we've overcome the world. We're his child. We've been given his spirit. And there is a power there, a desire there that enables us to believe and love and obey. And so John summarizes this first section. He he finishes this description by circling back to where he started at the end of verse 4. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. And if that reminds you of the old hymn, Faith is the Victory, that's probably the line that the, the hymn itself was based on. This is the victory. And in Greek literature, by the word, that Greek word victory, where we get the English word Nike, often refers to the Roman emperor's power that granted him victory. The the Roman emperor had an army and he had authority and that gave him victory over the barbarians. But what gives you victory over the world? What's the real power in this world? Faith in Christ. As Jesus tells us in John 1633, I have overcome the world. And now John is telling us that as we trust in Christ, that victory is played out in your life. Jesus has overcome the world, and by trusting in him, we overcome it as well. 
And there may be a countercultural path. Again, it was humility, love, suffering, and death by which Jesus overcame the world. But as we follow him in whatever path God gives you, that is how to overcome. That's real power. That's real victory. So that is faith there, the description of God's people as faith and its fruits. Now let's look at the second emphasis in the passage, the importance of faith and its object. And here John will will zero in on the importance of the object of faith. He he jumps right in in verse 6. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. Now, here we go. We have a passage where John's like, let me tell you how important it is that you have the right object for your faith. Okay, John, could you have made your meaning a little clearer if you're going to say it's so important uh, that we get the object of our faith right? But I do think if we look closely, it's not a secret code. We can make sense of what John is saying. When he refers to water and blood, think of the life of Christ. Where do you have water? You have water at Jesus' baptism. Where do you have blood? You have it at his bloody death. And the point that John wants to make is that Jesus Christ, he didn't come by the water of baptism only, but by water and blood. In other words, Jesus the Christ was truly baptized and he truly died. Now you may wonder, okay, why does John need to make that point? Probably in the background of the letter, again, looking at what was going on in the first century, looking at what was happening in later generations of Christianity and its opponents, there were probably false teachers who taught that the heavenly Christ descended upon Jesus at his baptism, but withdrew from before his death. There's teaching like that in the air and in the water in the generations following 1 John. So maybe there were some early ideas creeping their way in, trying to make sense of how Jesus could be God, but how he could die at the same time. Okay, well, the Christ came down on him at baptism, but took off before he died. And John says, no, that won't work. Jesus was already the Christ at his baptism, and he continued to be so throughout his death. What was God's testimony there, or I should say first John the Baptist's testimony in John's gospel? Then John gave this testimony, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The Spirit of God came down in order to say, this Jesus, this is the Christ. This is God's Son. Not to transform him into something he was not, but to anoint him with power, living as a man, to do his ministry as God's Son and as the Christ. So small wonder then that John mentions the testimony of the Spirit at the end of verse 6. And it is the Spirit who testifies... Because the Spirit is the truth. So the Spirit testified that Jesus was or is the Christ. And the Spirit continues to testify with us in the inward witness that that same Jesus died and rose again for our salvation. 
So he was the Christ anointed there by the Spirit. He continued to be the Christ throughout his life and death. He was the Christ even in that bloody event. And so he is the Christ after his resurrection and even now at God's right hand. The Spirit said it and the Spirit continues to say it. Now when we come to verses 7 and 8, We have another statement about the water and the blood that I want to clarify, but it's complicated by the fact that we have two different versions of these verses in our English translations. So in the King James Version and the New King James Version, verses 7 and 8 contain a phrase that is omitted in other translations. So when I read from the NIV tonight, it was shorter than if you had a New King James or a King James and were reading along with me. Let me read you the longer version from the New King James Version. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree as one. So the longer reading has two sets of three witnesses. You have the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, they bear witness in heaven, and the spirit, the water, and the blood bear witness on earth. The shorter reading that I read omits the first set of three, the heavenly witnesses. It refers only to the united witness of the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Now, why such an obvious difference in our English translations? And which one should I follow uh, in order to make sense of the text? I'm not going to give the long answer to that. We've spoken to this before. Just a quick summary, the quick reminder that in God's providence, we have over 5,000 copies of the Greek New Testament. Not everyone is the full New Testament, but 5,000 manuscripts that contain some part of the Greek New Testament. That, by the way, is an unusual thing when it comes to ancient documents, including the number of copies we have, even of someone like Shakespeare, who was only 500 years ago. Those are usually few in number. So the fact that we have so many New Testament manuscripts is a very good thing. And in 95% of those manuscripts, they agree with one another. What one says is what all the others say. And if you were working from the 95% agreement, you could establish every major doctrine of the New Testament. And I've read conservatives, moderates, and others. They all agree on that point. 95% agree, and you can establish all of your Christian doctrine from those places of agreement. In some places, the manuscripts disagree. Sometimes it's minor. Is it Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus? You can go on with life, never worry about that at all. Other times you notice the disagreement a little bit more. This is sometimes it's a hard call. Sometimes it's a hard call. This is one of those places where the difference between the two is pretty easy to resolve. So the longer reading that we find in the King James and the New King James Version, that only exists in a very small number of Greek manuscripts. And they all date from a period much later than when the New Testament was originally written. So the date of those copies is very late in the history of transmission. Around the time of the Reformation, 
when editions of the Greek New Testament were being put together. There's a well-known one called the Textus Receptus. When that was first made, it didn't include this longer reading. But eventually, like the third edition did, because it was a very popular reading in the Middle Ages, because it's very prevalent in the Latin manuscripts. That edition became the basis for the King James Version. Now, later editions of that very same Greek New Testament removed the line. They just said, you know what, this is, John didn't originally write this line. The evidence is really weak. But the King James Version worked from an edition that included it. And once it's in your heritage of English versions, it can be kind of hard to remove it. People start getting shaky. What are you, do? What are you cutting out of my Bible? Why are you taking those things away? But in this instance, the longer reading was not present in the majority of manuscripts. It's only present in a few late manuscripts. It's not present in any ancient translations, say from the first five centuries. None of the church fathers quote it. And think about it. If you were discussing this with somebody who didn't believe in the Trinity, wouldn't this be a great go-to verse to go to? You would think in all the debates about the Trinity in the first centuries of the church, if this verse was in First John... People would be appealing to it left and right, but it's gone. It's not there. And so that, along with all the other evidence, indicates this was probably, as manuscripts are copied, a note someone wrote in the margin. You ever write in your Bible? You ever put a little study note, a reflection on your reading that day? Someone wrote out that longer reading. They saw the Spirit, the water, and the blood maybe mirroring the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Someone comes along later and sees the marginal note and thinks, oh, is that something that's supposed to be incorporated into the text? Maybe they had another copy that included it. Let's play it safe and copy it into the manuscript. So having said all that, it's probably not original. Again, how often does this happen where it's this noticeable? Really only a handful of times. And if you ever really want to get into that, the footnotes of your Bibles and other things will tell you all of your options. So thanks for bearing with that. And I think I just want to say now, what's the point of what John is saying? His point is that the witness of the Spirit, the water, and the blood, they stand or fall together. A person cannot claim, I accept the witness of the Spirit, but they don't, they reject the witness of the water and the blood to the true character of Jesus. The false teachers say, hey, we've got the Spirit on our side. But John says, why would the Spirit contradict himself? He testified that Jesus is the Christ and stayed with him through his violent death. The Spirit, the baptism, the death, they all preach the same message. And that's the message we cling to for eternal life. And so last thing tonight, look at verses 9 and 10. Because this is where John drives home his point. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts his testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. John's point is, look, we should accept God's testimony about Jesus. God the Father spoke from heaven. God the Holy Spirit 
descended upon Jesus. They said, this is my son, the father's son, in whom I am well pleased. So to listen to what God says about Jesus is fundamental. It's decisive for the integrity of the faith and the security of your soul. And God, in his grace, has given us this word so we can hear over and over what he says about his son through his spirit. And when we're doing that, by the way, when we're submitting ourselves to God, we are submitting to the one who first accommodated himself to us. And it may seem strange to speak that way, but what has John's point been all tonight? God took on flesh. He went through the baptism. He went through the death. He accommodated himself. He stooped low for us. So now we can listen to him and stoop low for him and trust in that object and bear these fruits for God's glory. So let's pray to that end. Pray with me, friends. Father in heaven again, we just thank you for your grace. The grace of the Son to die for us. Even in a a complicated discussion of getting your word right, getting the text right, what's the clear message that the Spirit enabled Christ to die in our place? So thank you, Lord, for that great grace. And thank you that we have your word, that that we can open these pages and, and see them speaking to us, bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we can follow that reliable guide to know him. And give us an interest in the word, even in fun, nitty-gritty details, above all, in being doers of what you reveal here, so that we could have a true and lively faith that expresses itself in love for you and love for others. So send us out this week as loving agents, bearing witness to the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's sing one last time, hymn 189, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. Fantastic, classic song, 189, so stand with me. We'll sing verses 1 and 4.